It's Thursday, April 27th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virgin- Hoover Institution's Virginia Hubs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow podcasting these days. I suggest you go to the Hoover website, which is hoover.org. Uh, click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Head over to where it says multimedia and up will come audio podcasts. There are 17 and in all, including this podcast, uh, just all kinds of wonderful topics. And if you just travel a lot or just like to listen to podcasts when you're exercising or just out and about, it's all good, uh, good content. Trust me. Joining me today for a conversation about Africa, some would say as an overlooked continent, given the focus on the war in Europe and rising tensions in Asia, is my Hoover colleague, Tom Henriksen. Tom is, an, Tom is an emeritus senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution, where he focuses on U.S. foreign policy, international political affairs, and insurgencies. He specializes in the study of American diplomatic and military courses of action toward terrorist havens in the non-Western world and toward rogue regimes. Tom Henderson joins us today to discuss the column he recently wrote for the Hoover Institution's Defining Ideas Journal. It's titled Power and Persuasion in Africa. It's a look at how Russia and China are increasing their wealth and influence throughout the continent. If you're interested in this topic, by all means, go check it out. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's good to be with you. So before we get into Africa, um, a little sad news of note here at the Hoover Institution. Uh, we lost a past director, John Racian, who was the director of the Hoover Institution from 1990 to 2015. Uh, just a wonderful guy, um, passed away after a long illness. Um, I cannot emphasize how much just what a good fellow John was. Uh, he'd just walk the halls. If he saw you, he always had a smile on his face. He'd stop you and want to know what's going on in your life. Um, always just a good guy to talk to, cheerful, wonderful outlook on life. Tom, you knew John actually longer than I did. I came into Hoover at 1999. You precede me at Hoover by a couple of decades. John, I think, joined Hoover in 1985. Uh, just give, your, give us a few thoughts on what was uh, John Racian's all about. Well, I think, you know, John came in at a very tumultuous time. Uh, there had been a great deal of tension between Hoover Institution and Stanford University, much of it over uh, whether the Ronald Reagan uh, Memorial Library would be built at Stanford or, as it turned out, to Simi Valley uh, down in Southern California near Los Angeles. Uh, that period had really uh, impacted the Hoover Institution because of its former director, uh, there had been a lot of tension, as I mentioned, and it was a kind of unsteadiness. And I think John had a, a unique ability to be really calm when the rest of us weren't calm. And he looked calm and he kind of settled things down. It took a little while for us to uh, solve or him to solve the biggest problem that we faced was a deficit in spending, which he did. It took us three or four years to do that. But he did it. Uh, he also studied the place in relations with Stanford. And he brought in several really uh, very good scholars who added to the already good cast of, 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 of cadre that preceded him. Yeah, I'll note, and also the Traytel building, which I'd point to, the Jonah David Traytel building, which if you're on the Stanford campus is just a beautiful structure. And uh, we at the Hoover Institution use it for a lot of our events with overseers and public meetings and so forth. Uh, very fitting, I thought, that the courtyard is named after him. Indeed, yeah, that that is good news. Uh, I think he needs to be recognized more because uh, he, he was quiet in a sense. I mean, he wasn't always beating his own drum, and I think it's good for us who are still around uh, to do that for him. Well put. 
Well, let's uh, shift the, let's shift the topics now, Tom, to Africa. And before we get into your column, let's talk about the news out of Africa this past weekend, uh, and that is the uh, events in Sudan. U.S. special forces, uh, special ops forces, going into Sudan to rescue, uh, evacuate, I should say, uh, workers from the U.S. embassy. I think Tom, they sent in three helicopters and rescued something like uh, seventy Americans. There are still, I believe, sixteen thousand Americans uh, left behind in that country. So this sounds very much like Afghanistan again. Um, were you surprised when you saw this news? Not totally, because it's been Sudan has been unstable for you know several years now. Uh, it back many many years ago it was a haven for terrorists, and uh, it also was one of the so-called rogue states, along with North Korea, Iraq, Syria, uh, and Iran. Uh, it was never in the forefront because it didn't really go after nuclear weapons in a, in a serious way. But it's had a kind of rocky uh, period in its history. It's not one of those stable countries. And so wasn't totally unexpected. And since the, the, the war between these various uh, squads uh, or various groups uh, has been going on for a while. So I, I wasn't totally surprised. Mm-hmm. So what are the U.S. options here with regard to Sudan? Do we just stand by and watch the war, the fighting continue to go on? Do we... Do we escalate our attention to this, uh, Tom? Because between what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on with China, we're already kind of kind of strapped as is. Yeah, we certainly are. Uh, with there, the United States, along with some other countries, has managed to secure a kind of humanitarian scale down in the fighting. That probably won't last, however. Uh, there's not a lot of leverage that we have. I mean, we can't offer too much. Uh, we, you know, we're trying to broker peace between two really milit- uh, militia-type uh, organizations. One represents the government, of course, but the other is a, a, a derivation of, of government forces into a militia. So we don't have a lot. I think we can try. Uh, maybe when both sides are exhausted it's, of themselves, they'll be more uh, reconciled to some sort of peace agreement. But it doesn't look like it's going to be soon. Mm-hmm. And let's talk a bit, Tom, about the role that special uh, ops forces play here for the U.S. and Africa and other countries. Uh, our viewers might be interested to know that you work at, of all things, the Joint Special Operations University. Yes, there's such a thing. It's in Tampa, I believe, Tom. Isn't it part of Southern Command? Yes, uh, it, it's not. It is actually a separate command. Special Operations mm-hmm. Force or uh, our Special Operations Command is a separate command, but it, it specializes in hostage rescue. At least the, the SEALs do to a great deal, and so do the Delta Force. And as a consequence, they're excellent at this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, they did. A, these are the same uh, groups, uh, particularly the SEALs who uh, uh, eliminated Osama bin Laden back in 2011 when mm-hmm. he was number one on our terrorist list. Right. They call it, I believe, the think-do-tank. Yes, that's uh, it. it, it uh, They're really good at this uh, sort of thing. There's not, you can, can't give them enough praise for how they, how they execute these uh, operations. Okay. So you're part of the university. So can you actually tell us what you're doing there or is this confidential or is it top secret or what, what, what exactly does one study one is studying joint special operations? Well, what I, what I, my tiny role as a senior fellow at so-called JSAL joint special operations university was to write things. Everything I ever wrote was done from uh, open sources. I never published anything in, in, uh, in, um, it's from secret sources or anything that was even a little bit shady. I was very careful. 
uh, and we we also had a re- pretty strict regimen about if we did mention certain things, we were to run those articles or those books past the, the authorities at the Joint Special Operations University so they could clear anything or, or tell us to, to remove it. So it was a, a relationship that we based on open sources. Mm-hmm. And explain, Tom, how this ties into the last book that you wrote. The title of that is America's Wars, Interventions, Regime Change, and Insurgencies After the Cold War. Well, I, I covered uh, all of the wars the United States engaged in, as, as you point out in the title, uh, since the fall of Berlin Wall. And that started with Panama. We got into the uh, United States, as you know, into the Persian Gulf War, uh, was caught up in Bosnia and in Kosovo. Uh, and of course, uh, after 9-11, we intervened in Afghanistan and then Iraq. Uh, but there were lots of part of the, the war on terrorism just engaged against uh, places like Iraq or uh, Afghanistan. There are several others that are ongoing at the present time. One is in the Philippines and several in a northern part of the African continent, uh, particularly in the Shahil region. Uh, these are these are really minuscule wars or frontier wars, so to speak. And uh, American forces do not directly engage. Fr- frequently, they uh, provide support and training, uh, and they also provide intelligence and sometimes mobility. That is to say, helicopters. Uh, on a, and on a rare occasion, they will actually enter to fight themselves. And something like the hostage res- rescue that just took place in Sudan as a direct intervention of American forces. But many times it's the indigenous people uh, of those countries that are trained by the special forces to engage uh, against ISIS and also Al-Qaeda, which are both operating in uh, this northern region of, of, uh, of, of Africa, which includes countries like not only Libya, but uh, uh, Cameroon, Central African Republic, uh, Bur- Burkina Faso and Mali, and even down into Mozambique, which is in southern Africa. Right. So the purpose, the role then, is to advise, to to help train, to to just help the sisters, but not shed blood. It sounds like that, that's correct. The idea is to let the, the indigenous people do it. The people that live there, they have a lot at stake, uh, and they're they're willing to do this and it's better that they do it than than we do it it can uh they are you know it's their war not our war and we want to help them win it because if we don't uh, terrorism may spread to the united states or to western europe as it has in the past okay let's talk about the uh, column tom power and persuasion in africa uh you started out by calling this the second scramble for africa i assume the first scramble was colonization britain germany france belgium all uh, planting their flags across the continent. Tom, this would have been for natural resources and uh, especially in the case of France manpower come the time of the First World War. What defines Tom the second scramble? The second scramble, you described very well, the first scramble. The second scramble is different. I I think that the the first scramble was more for national prestige. The countries you mentioned and and, uh, also including Portugal, Right. These were countries that wanted to stake out claims in the world. This is part of getting their place in the sun, as the Germans said when they took over Southwest Africa. The idea what they would colonize, uh, they would, in fact, take out some resources, of course, 
but they also did a lot for building of infrastructure in the countries. They, they were the ones who built the railways and telegraphs and bridges and started schools and, and clinics. Uh, this was part of their so-called civilizing mission. And they all felt this, but Europe had a kind of obligation. Now it carried along with the sense of obligation to help someone out it carried seeds of racism because there was a kind of feeling that these European people were very uh, advanced over African peoples and therefore they had a tendency to look down on this. It was an unfortunate uh, part of, of this uh, uh, conquest of Africa, but most of the continent was divided up, just uh, a country, a few countries, Ethiopia and uh, Liberia uh, managed to escape direct colonization, but most countries were taken over. And that lasted until uh, after uh, World War II and, and the early year, the early decades afterwards, until most of the European countries were expelled from Africa. Right. So you, uh, in terms of talking about the second scramble, Tom, uh, you say there are two countries principally involved here, one Russia, the other China. And what you discuss here is you call it a natural match and that you have undemocratic African nations teaming up with dictatorial regimes in Moscow and Beijing. Is it is that simple? It's a simple read, but is it as simple as that really if these countries just line up that way? Well, what happens, but these countries, uh, some of them are unstable. Uh, they have uh rapacious rulers, uh, non-democratic uh, dictatorial rulers, and they're facing insurgencies or they're facing opposition within their country. And so they turn to either China, which usually provides uh, resources and buildings and, and transportation, uh, but also pays off people. And, and of course, the Russians are in big time uh, the Russians are, are interested in resources. They're also interested in a way of, of confounding the West whenever they can. And they uh, they aid uh, African states, sometimes by the use of mercenary forces uh, that are also used in the war uh, in Ukraine. That is to say, this uh, mercenary group uh, is by uh, uh, called the, the, Wagon, the Wagner Group. Uh, right. That's a name it's derived from actually Wagner, uh, <laughs> but they picked that name. And then uh, they are they are they are being uh, used because their mercenaries are not particularly honor bound to uh, observing the rules of war or prisoner exchange. And sometimes they can be pretty ruthless. And they are in Africa as they are in Ukraine also. Okay, so simple question here, Tom. What is in this for Russia? What what is Russia's intent in Africa? Well, I think Russia wants several things. That's that's a very good question. That goes to the heart of what what they're up to. The Russians want certain resources, and they want to sell things to other people. They sell arms. Uh, the Chinese, of course, are much ahead of them, as is the United States. Uh, but they also want influence around the world, and they want to confront you know, America with another front. Uh, uh, as, you, as we know, uh, China is pushing us hard in Taiwan, but the Russians are also pushing us very hard uh, in the Ukraine, and this, uh, and as well as Syria. And they are interfering in Syria as as well as these North African states by providing them training, uh, providing them some arms, and uh, they gain leverage over that, and they can take up uh, 
the uh, cultivation of gems or take um, mining of gems of, of uh, gold. And they also have access to things like bauxite, which is used for aluminum. So it's pretty much very centered around their own interest. And they have less idea of what the Europeans did 100 years ago of civilizing missions or trying to improve the country. They don't have that at, at heart. They're much more focused on their own agenda. Right. They could, for example, um, help with the money of gold. I think the Wagner Group is involved in gold money, if I'm not mistaken. And they could smuggle gold, Tom, and you could use that money to finance your war, right? Well, that's true. They use it for that. Uh, and uh, they also want to sell whenever they can. Uh, uh, Africa does have, many parts of Africa does have oil, but they can also sell petroleum to them too. So they're definitely, it's calculated to be in their own interest. This, as I say, this is not some humanitarian venture uh, by, any, by any stretch of imagination. Okay, so when Russia, Tom, wants to help develop Port Sudan uh, with infrastructure the way they wanted to help the Syrians uh, with port infrastructure as well, we saw that and we thought the Russians want to establish a foothold in the Mediterranean for naval forces. Is that the play for Russia as well? Do they want to get involved in the Red Sea? Well, there's some of that. Uh, they they want to, to, uh, to the United States does have a base, of course, in the Horn of Africa, as as does China. Uh, the Chinese are also interested in uh, acquiring uh, a base on the west coast of Africa. But all of this is calculated to, as I say, tax the United States, which has, as you've indicated at the beginning, a lot of problems on its plate right now with Ukraine, right. with Taiwan. And this is just one more thing. And it, it, uh, it requires us to engage in another place uh, with, with slender resources. And and and, a, and almost a very difficult terrain for us to work in. Okay, let's turn to the other player here, China. This might be a little more of a complicated conversation. Um, I look at what China is doing in Africa, and the first thing that stands out, Tom, is the idea of debt rats. Explain explain what China is doing with regard to African nations and debt. Well, what the, the, the Chinese under the leadership uh, Zhang Jiangping is is is. Um, they have decided to further their own trading interests by uh, launching a huge, very expensive program called the the, the uh, uh, Roads and Initiative, Bridges and Roads Initiative, mm -hmm. which builds infrastructure, particularly for transportation to harbors and harbors, of course, and and could be roads or it could be uh, it could also be dams, uh, air, uh, airports, uh, and and uh, railway, of course. And uh, this is a way of encouraging debt in these countries because they can't really pay it back. And so China can expand by using that. It's a different model than the Russians who are more dealing with life and death issues and shooting people and so on. The, the Chinese way is much more subtle in a way, but it's, more, it's sometimes more effective because these countries become terribly dependent on, uh, on China. And they, in order to pay off this debt, or at least to, to assuage it in some way, they will grant favors to the Chinese. That favors could include bases, usually, uh, and favored nation uh, trade with China. So the Chinese model is a little is more entrepreneurial, uh, less uh, militaristic, but uh, also very effective. Right. I think I saw Tom or Djibouti and Angola. Um, they both uh, are deeply in debt to China. I think their debt exceeds 40% of their gross national incomes. 
Well, that's it. That's example. I mean, Angola is a very wealthy country uh, with oil and Cabinda, just a little enclave north of it. But mm-hmm. also it's a country that could could really be very developed. But by incurring these kind of debts, they're huge. Uh, and Djibouti, in the case, it's on the West Coast. They, uh, the country itself uh, has granted the Chinese some, some basing. Uh, so it pays off. Uh, and also in Sri Lanka, the same sort of phenomenon, although Sri Lanka is a long way from Africa. Right. Uh, it, it's uh, it's the same sort of situation where their harbor is indebted. The building this massive harbor they have wanted has made China uh, a major player in their country. And that's the Chinese are doing this deliberately uh, to uh, to create a debt in, in various uh, uh, developing countries. Right. So, Tom, if the Chinese have a naval presence in Djibouti, that is the intersection of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Arabia, I believe. So now they have a potential to do two things if they wanted to. I mean, if we really kind of getting deep into the geopolitical weeds here, one is they could mess around again with the Suez canals. Could the Russians, if you control the Red Sea, then you cannot enter the canal from um, going uh, north, uh, going south to north. And also if you're going north to south, you can't get out of the canal if you have forces there. And also, Tom, if they're in Djibouti, then they're not too far from the Gulf, which gets an oil traffic. And now you have a chaotic world. So, of course, then again, the Chinese are reliant upon oil. So maybe not so much. But again, there's a military presence. Yes, there is. And it's also tied in. You did a good job of summarizing the issues. And it's also tied in with Iran, who's become a player with Russia, particularly, but also with China. And Iran, as we know, is not a friend of the United States and hasn't been since the fall of the Shah in 1979. It's been an implacable foe for us. And so all of this is geopolitical. There is aspects of this to take control or at least to cause the United States problems and and worries about uh, we are less oil dependent than Europe, but and we seem to help the Europeans in this dependency by trying to help the Europeans in places that are unstable. So it it is a factor in in their calculations, uh, China and in uh, Russia. And it doesn't mean that they necessarily see eye to eye on every issue. They are allies, but they do have their own uh, perspective and they have their own agenda items. Okay, let's talk now, Tom, about what's in all of this for the United States of America. So much of the conversation about our Africa, Tom, in U.S. circles uh, revolves around humanitarian aspects of what's going on in the continent. We talk about the growing population and will Africans be able to feed themselves and will they be able to get good health care? Will they get education? Will there be migrant crises if uh, if there is not economic opportunity in, in Africa as well? One thing that doesn't get a lot of conversation, though, which you talk about in your Defining Ideas piece, though, Tom, is the issue of terrorism. Well, there's that. Uh, that this is another problem. In addition to uh, encroachments by China and Russia, which are calculated to to be disruptive in some respects, they also the United States uh, faces this problem of terrorism and uh, uh, outfits like Al Qaeda, which did the bombing of uh, the, uh, the planes fl- flown into the the tower. The uh, uh, New York City Twin Towers and also into the Pentagon, they haven't been doing so well in uh, Central Asia as they used to do. And they're not, uh, that is say also ISIS, they're not doing as well. So they've now picked on this vital region between North Africa, uh, the Shahil, uh, the Sahara Desert, and tropical Africa, 
And uh, these groups are, are very, very sophisticated in winning over locals. They are locals themselves, but they're winning them over uh, by providing certain services uh, to them. They create a certain law and order. They provide jurisdictions uh, or ju judicial uh, uh, services. Uh, they're also can prey on the fact that uh, th these people, that they're, they're all Muslims, and they're just using this element of common religion against the West whenever they can. So it can be quite murderous to their own people who don't go along with this. And of course, for the United States and its Western allies. Yeah, I believe Tom didn't bin Laden. Um, he originally, I think he had legitimate businesses in Sudan. I think he had a, I think he had Tom, I think he had a tannery. He had a couple of large farms. I think he had a road construction yeah, company as that's well. That's true. Yeah, to pay the bills, he had to do this when he couldn't get enough sponsorships from wealthy Saudis they uh, they have sometimes engaged in their own their own activities grown growing of things or things they could sell to others okay so I want you to um to visualize for uh, our audience a map of Africa Tom and I'll let you have as many pin cushions as you want here put pin cushions on the map on countries or parts of Africa where we would be concerned about terrorism such as Somalia and so forth in other words Show me either countries that are potentially harbors for terrorism or either hot spots or cold spots and potentially could be hot spots. We'd have to have at least three colors of thumbtacks, I guess, here. Yes, well, we could. Uh, yeah. Most of it, one territory, uh, where, where this region I pointed to before, the Shahil, which really spans the continent. It goes from east to west or west to east, however. Mm -hmm. And it includes countries like Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, goes over to Central African Republic, the Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, and South Sudan. So it's really huge. And then if you go a little bit south, as I mentioned earlier, you have a country of Mozambique, which is uh, it's a very large country. It's, it's shaped a little bit like California. It has a very long coast, around 1,500 meters. Uh, its coastline is very Muslim, interior not so much. It's more that's more of indigenous Africans. But these these countries are uh, under under threat. Uh, they have instability in their own countries uh, because of their governments, and though they're being exploited, of course, by uh, these um, Islamic groups, Muslim groups, who are we would call extremist Muslims. Uh, these are not the, the, the normal Muslims in, in uh, Western countries. So these, these groups are quite vicious, uh, and they enforce uh, other, other uh, individuals to join them. If they don't join them, they're killed. Uh, and so they are, are very compelling. And they do single out the United States in their, uh, uh, their propaganda and their pronouncements. So it's not that they're benign and just taking over territory for, the, for their own sake, but they also have an agenda toward the United States and Western Europe. Okay, so we, the United States, sit back here and we collect intelligence on what's going on. Tom, at what point do we decide to take intelligence and make it actionable? In other words, send in the special ops forces to deal with the bad guys. Well, we have uh, actually... It, most people don't know, but in the country of Niger, the United States built a fairly large airfield. It took four years uh, and cost about over $100 million. And so we've committed ourselves to this. And the air base, of course, is a hub, uh, not just for our attacks, but to help the, the local people repelling 
these uh, Al Qaeda groups or ISIS groups uh, and their terrorism. So we have a, a fairly large force, and a number of the countries that I mentioned have usually 600 to 700 uh, forces in them. These are Green Berets, sometimes who do lots and lots of the training, but also the more action-oriented forces uh, of Delta and and uh, and along with that. Uh, the Delta forces, the, the SEALs. And so we are committed in there. These are kept kind of low profile. There's not a lot of coverage. They're not secret so much yeah. as they just, they don't talk about them a whole lot, but they're there. And in my chapter, my one in my book, I do have a whole, I say one chapter in there about all these activities and bringing them out and what's going on with whom. But it's quite a large enterprise in a sense of a small number of troops, but lots and lots of lots of territory at stake. And how do we convince, Tom, how do we convince Nigeria to do this? Because to cooperate with the U.S. and set up this base makes yourself immediately a target for other countries that are not pro-Western. Well, so far that hasn't been affected too much. Uh, African, most of the African governments do want support. So there are these, these terrorist groups uh, you recall Boko Haram was one that operated in Nigeria of all places. And back about over 10 years ago, they took 200 schoolgirls uh, and and held them as hostage. They eventually were arrested. But they do this. They're very disruptive in countries. And it's not just the countries that I mentioned, but they're beginning to move toward coastal countries like Nigeria uh, and uh, the, Syria, the um, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, and so as a consequence, all of these countries are, are threatened uh, by these terrorist groups. Uh, and so they do look to the United States, and, and the, for a while the French were helping this great deal, less so the British, but the French were quite active because they had several colonies in, in Northern Africa. Yeah, it's uh, interesting you mentioned that, Tom, because these nations are not necessarily guilty of what Oromo would call groupthink. Um, and I'd point people to look at the various votes of the United Nations with regards to punishing Russia for its actions in Ukraine. And if you look at the roll call votes, Tom, you have African nations, some voting uh, in favor of resolutions condemning Russia, uh, others voting against the resolution, and some making a very crafty decision just to vote absent and not get involved in it. But there is not, the point is there's just not unified thought either pro or con Russia. Jesse's countries all making their the sort of individual conclusions. Well, that's true. And some don't, they don't want to be treated uh, as they were in, in the first scramble for Africa. They'd want to be considered pawns that the United States will move around. And I remember reading one quote from an African official, uh, and it's kind of telling about how they regard their struggle and how uh, they, it's playing out. And what this, this uh, particular official said, United States, uh, we get uh, from the United States, we get lectures rather than substantive projects like the Chinese, Chinese give us. So China gives these countries uh, a road or an airport and the United States gives them a lecture. And they feel that. They these we forget, I think, how long in the West it took for democracy to evolve. It was hundreds of years with lots and lots of setbacks. And so these countries face some of the same hurdles that, say, you know, 15th century, 16th century European countries faced in their evolution toward democracy. But that doesn't make them receptive 
to being lectured what they should be doing. So it requires a certain sophistication on the United States and its officials, uh, State Department officials, uh, and how we handle this. So it's not an easy, it's not going to be an easy task. It's going to be very, very challenging. Speaking of sophisticated thinking, Tom, in your column, you tried to point readers to the following thought that while we are not at war with Africa, the president's not gone before Congress and declared as such, uh, we are basically looking at forever wars in terms of chasing terrorists around that continent, no? Yes, the, the problem, you don't win these kind of conflicts with, you know, no one's going to sit down on, the, on a battleship such as Missouri in 1945 right. and surrender as the Japanese did to uh, General MacArthur and American forces. Uh, right. and, this, and, it's not, and it's not all going to get settled in one big battle like Gettysburg or Midway or anything like that. No, it's not. And in fact, the battles tend to be rather small uh, right. and, and uh, casualties sometimes are low. What happens is that many times the, the terrorists raid and kill innocent people. And that's where the casualties get run up in high numbers because you're shooting and killing civilians. Uh, so these kind of conflicts are, are hard to combat, they require a lot of training of, of, of American, not American forces, but they have to go there and they have to learn some of the languages and they have to, have to train uh, uh, African forces in how to combat it and not to lose their cool and not to take out ca their own casualties, that is say African soldiers casualties on individuals who uh, happen to be in a way of fire. They have to discriminate uh, there and learn to separate the bad guys from the people who are just average people. And so that takes that takes a certain restraint, takes a lot of training. Uh, and uh, so it's not an easy, and these are, these are forever wars. They can go on for a long time. These are really frontier wars that uh, countries faced, uh, such as the British faced around the world in the 19th century. Right. Uh, final subject, uh, Tom, uh, on foreign policy. Um, there was once upon a time in America, the Truman Doctrine, which was very simple, prevent communism from spreading. That ultimately gets us into Vietnam. There was Tom the Reagan Doctrine, which was to support anti-communist insurgents, and that gets us involved with the Contras in Nicaragua. There is no longer communism, Tom. Is there such a thing right now as a Biden Doctrine? There is. I'm not aware of Uh <laughs> There, well, here's there, what here's what here's what I'm getting at, Tom. Um, the Truman Doctrine uh, evolved in 1947. The Reagan Doctrine was unveiled, I think, in January of 1985, if I'm not mistaken, in a State of the Union address. So it's almost 40 years after the the Truman announcement. And so here we are. Uh, 2025 will be 45 years after the Reagan Doctrine. It would seem, Tom, if it's as simple as doing these things 40 years apart, it's time for a new foreign policy doctrine. Well, it is. I mean, we did have a stab at that. Um, George Herbert, uh, uh, I'm sorry, George Wa Walker Bush, this Bush II, did have the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism. Right. And that at least put it together. But we were at war with these groups. And that didn't just mean military war. It meant also a war of spreading values, a war of, of helping people develop their economies to re be more resistant uh, against terrorist groups. Uh, so there was in place, and then the, the incoming uh, Obama administration did away with that and talked about contingencies. But there needs to be a fact, a kind of strengthening in it. I think it has to come through democracy rather than a military doctrine. Right. It has to say, we're going to try to help these countries develop toward democracy. And as I indicated earlier, this has to be done with great sensitivity 
and the realization it's going to be a long, long haul. Uh, it's not going to happen within one administration. But at the Cold War, we did hand off from one administration to another administration. So it, we need to have some sort of overarching uh, doctrine that, that another subsequent uh, administration can embrace most of it and may change parts of it, but embrace it as we did the fighting the Cold War against the Soviets through you know four decades. Yeah, Tom, here's how Reagan defined the doctrine in that speech from 1985, quote, we must not break faith with those who are risking their lives on every continent from Afghanistan to Nicaragua to defy Soviet support to defy Soviet supported aggression and secure rights, which have been ours from birth. Tom, if you just replace the phrase Soviet supported aggression with totalitarian regimes, you got yourself a new doctrine. I mean, if there's always a stumbling around and sometimes they refer to groups as communists. They're not really communists. Uh, communists had a doctrine, you know, Karl Marx, it had a huge study. There was lots of debates within the communist world about what communism should do and wouldn't do and so on. But uh, so we're facing totalitarian people who want power. They're more in kin, I think, with, with uh, say, uh, Mussolini and Hitler than they are uh, with uh, what was going on in Red Square. So it's it's a different kind, but we need to kind of come to terms with the fact that totalitarianism is a, an issue we have to we have to confront. Dictatorial governments are not in our interest. It is, and we can point to two countries in particular, which we started this conversation with, which are China and Russia as the totalitarian regimes. But then, Tom, we have this question of of U.S. involvement come the time when the totalitarian regime acts badly. For example, if the Chinese decide to invade Taiwan, we are involved. But what if a Chinese-backed country in Africa moves on another country that is not Chinese-backed in Africa? In other words, oppression versus freedom. Do we get involved there or not? And so you can, you can see how complicated this doctrine could get very fast. It is, and 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 won't be t there won't be uniform uh, application of the doctrine. There'll be some we have to kind of let go by, and we did that during the Cold War also. Though uh, we didn't enter into everywhere, we didn't fight every. We, in fact, you know, in the case of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, United States did not intervene. Uh, the same thing in the, the Prague Spring uh, in Czechoslovakia. Uh, in the 1960s, we did not intervene, though we our hearts were with both the, the Hungarian revolutionaries and the Czech revolutionaries against their oppressors and occupiers. There are certain things we can't do militarily because it involves too much. On the other hand, we can do things uh, on smaller scale in different places. We do have to draw lines, I think, at Taiwan and Ukraine, but other areas probably not so much. Okay, exit question for you, Tom. We have pulled Americans out of uh, Khartoum. Uh, looking ahead, let's say a year from now, are we not involved in Sudan or do we find ourselves getting drawn into this? I think we will get drawn in uh, slightly, at least the, the, the uh, trying to negotiate some sort of peace. And as if there is a peace, providing some sort of humanitarian aid. And the hope is we can also encourage our European allies and other allies to come in with us and provide some of that. It, it is in the interest of Europe particularly, because when people leave Africa, immigrants, they don't come to the United States in great numbers. They go into uh, Europe uh, by going across the Mediterranean. They're flooding through uh, in great numbers in, in Italy right now. 
Uh, and so it's Europeans have a stake in this. And we have to tell them that remind them they know that, of course, they but we have to remind them that they owe something to to uh, the, the stability and the development of Africa as a continent. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question to ponder, Tom, because we have an election approaching in America, in case you haven't noticed. And uh, um, Republicans are already, you see rifts within the Republican Party, divides over Ukraine right now, neocons, natcons, and so forth. Uh, the Biden administration clearly is not crazy talking about foreign policy. The president uh, did his uh, video announcement the other day, three minutes, Tom, zero mention of uh, foreign policy, no shots of him in Kiev or anything like that. I don't think the president wants to get involved with Sudan in election year in terms of new boots on the ground. And I'm not sure Republicans want to debate this in the primary. So it's I'd just be very curious to see how our system would process the situation, given that the presidency is at stake here. Well, I think you raised the right issues. And politically, it's going to be very hard to do something like that um, unless we get some sort of cataclysm, you know, happening in parts of Africa. Uh, we probably will try to, to uh, stay out of it as much as possible. We'll get drawn in to a degree of negotiations and humanitarian interests. Okay, Tom, we'll leave it there. What are you working on next? You've got the Defining Ideas piece out, or you you got another book in you? Um, well, yeah, I'm pursuing this whole thing on, on terrorism. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, for our viewers, by the way, our listeners, uh, Tom Hendrickson has a impressive body of work when it comes to books. You go into Amazon, uh, you'll find a wonderful book he did on Korean unification back in the 1990s. Still a topic, I think, Tom. Uh, he Thanks. wrote a piece. He wrote a book about the feasibility of the U.S. leaving the Middle East, and I'd point your attention to uh, the latest book, which you were referencing. Again, its title is America's Wars, Interventions, Regime Change, and Insurgencies After the Cold War. Tom Hendrickson, thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Good okay, you take care. Take care, my friend. Bye. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends all about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. I missed our website at the beginning of the show. That is Hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It delivers you the best work from all our fellows, currently Tom Hendrickson. Tells you what Tom and his Hoover colleagues are up to on a weekday basis. Also, sign up for the Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each month to your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.